Good to be here with you today. We're going we're gonna to dive right in this morning. Last week we looked at James chapter 5, verse 12, and I want to read that to us again because it's going to lead into our scripture today. It says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. As we discussed last week, there's a lot in that verse, and we took our whole time last week just to break that one down. But I want to remind us that James isn't talking about swearing in the sense of using foul language. James is speaking directly about the integrity of our words. There was and still is this tendency to make promises, and I'm going to use air quotes, that you don't really intend to keep. We tell people we will do things, and perhaps we're doing it out of obligation or some small desire to please them, but we know that there's little chance that we're actually going to do the thing that we said that we're going to do. We've all certainly been on the receiving end of one of those kinds of promises. Again, we'll use air quotes. James's challenge to the church, to us, is that everything that we say should stand with such integrity that there is no need to qualify it with any other words. We talked about last week how when you swear an oath, it is by saying, I will do this thing, so help me God, or something like that. And the, the intent on the end of that is for us to bring extra weight to our words. And James is saying the goal of the church, the goal of believers, is that when we say something, that's all that needs to be said. We should not have to qualify that with extra words. A person of true faith says what they mean, and they mean what they say. Their words can be counted on. And this is our goal as followers of Christ, that those around us could know that, that we can be trusted to do what we say we're going to do. James then moves into this next section, and I want to point out that he does not say, my dear brothers and sisters. He's not signaling that there is a new teaching coming. He is continuing on in this same flow uh, from, this, from this previous verse, verse 12. And I find that to be very interesting, and I'll explain why we after, after we read it. But today we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. So it'll be up on the screen. Follow along with me, and then we're going to dive in. He says, is anyone among you suffering? he should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Years ago when Bethany was first diagnosed with cancer, I went to my boss to tell him, didn't know what life was going to look like after that, and he said something to me that I will never forget. In the middle of our conversation, and I'm thinking about how this is going to affect my work, that's why I'm talking to him about it, he says to me, from this moment on, when someone asks you to pray for them, you will. And it struck a chord with me. It hit me right in the chest. Because he I had identified something that I think all of us are guilty of doing. We're here in the South, right? Someone says, you say to someone, how are you? And they're like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling real good today. And you go, oh, I'll pray for you. Right, And just like we talked about last week, our, our, our intent is good, but sometimes we lack in the follow-through. Now, don't raise your hands, but are you guilty of doing that? I know I certainly was. 
But Steve was right. Because of Bethany's illness, I look at prayer for healing much differently today than I did prior to her battle with cancer. The authenticity and the integrity of a follower of Christ are foundational to the ministry of God. We've talked about this all the time, but we are God's representatives in the world. And if you tell a person that you will pray for them, and then you don't, it communicates to that person that they have little or no value in your eyes, and therefore little or no value in God's eyes. I have a novel idea for us. How about when someone asks for prayer, you pray for them right there, wherever you are. If they are willing and vulnerable enough to say, I need your prayers, you need to be willing and vulnerable enough to say, let's pray right now. And one of two things will happen, because most likely that is what they are looking for anyway. But either you will pray for them and it will have whatever effect the Holy Spirit wants it to have, or they'll be embarrassed by it and they won't ask you in front of other people again. But either way, there's some integrity that's bought to the conversation, right? And that's our goal. We're about to see today in our scripture that us praying for them is part of God's plan for himself to be revealed to the world. All of us have a role in the healing ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see what that is today. In these first several passages, these first several verses, James identifies three different prayers, and all of them are of equal significance. When most people read this passage, immediately they navigate to the section, to the verse 14, and focus in on the fact that people should be brought to the elders and prayed over them and anointed with oil. But James doesn't focus in on that one ministry of prayer. James addresses three, and I want us to to look at those today. So read with me again, verses 13 through 15. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. These three types of prayer, these three kinds of prayer are going to be our main focus for today. And then we're going to finish up by talking about what makes our prayers effective. So the three prayers are praying for yourself, prayer of the elders, and then the prayer of others. I also want to say as we begin that these are not an either-or situation. They're inclusive. You can do them in any order in which you feel called to do. There's any combination available. So let's talk about the first one, praying for yourself. Yesterday I was talking with uh, Pastor Juan Jose, and and he made a comment that often in Latin churches, people will get mad and leave the church because the pastor didn't come pray for them. But they don't tell the pastor they're sick. And I said, you know, that's not unique to the Latin churches. I've seen that happen in my own life. James addresses the importance of elders praying, but he do, that does not outweigh the other two, okay? This is why it's important for us to look at what James is saying, look at all of it. And we begin by praying for ourselves. You're the first one to know that you are not feeling well, that something is not right. And in that moment, address it with the Lord. We always talk about how important it is that we have our own personal relationship with God. And this is yet another reason why that is important. If you're sick, begin by talking with God about that sickness. Pray for yourself. In verse 13, James is encouraging the church to express their feelings, their joys, their concerns. Bring all of that to God. Because if you are sick and in in desire or need of a healing, don't avoid a personal conversation with God and go to somebody else and ask them to pray for you. 
Begin yourself. Initiate that conversation with the Lord. You can also ask the elders to pray. Let's look at verse 14. It says, Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So point number two is the prayer of the elders. This is the second type of prayer that James called. And to go back to J.J.'s example, it says right here in Scripture that you should call the elders. Okay? So it's not their fault if you didn't call. Okay? Everybody clear on that? All right. We're not mind readers, much as we might like to be. There's several things I want to point out about verse 14. First of all, the elders, I want you all to hear me on this, the elders do not um, possess any special power of healing that anybody else doesn't have. The elders of the church are appointed as God as the under-shepherds of the church. If y'all didn't know this, our boss is Jesus. He is the shepherd, right? We're the under-shepherds. And Jesus did lots of healing, but I would remind you that Jesus also says that he does nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. The same is true for the elders. We only do what the Father does, and God is the one doing the healing, and I want everybody to understand that. There's nothing special about the elders. We don't possess any power that anyone else does not. And often you're going to see people quote 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul says, to another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And they'll say that that is evidence that you can get a gift of healing. But I want to point out that when Paul is talking about this, he uses the plural for the word gifts. No one gets the gift of healing, but rather the Spirit gives gifts of healing as he wills. He goes on to say, Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, one and the same Spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. It's not the elders, it's not the pastors, it's not the staff of the church that do any work of healing. It's the Holy Spirit. Secondly, James says that the elders are to pray over him. And this specification is believed to be speaking about um, the elders going to pray for someone who is bedridden, that they can't come to the elders themselves, and so the elders are called to go, the, for the, go to them, or it could be in terms of laying of hands on people. But regardless, most likely James is talking about people that are not able to come to the church meeting due to their sickness, okay? Therefore, they should call for the elders to come and pray for them. That doesn't mean that you can't come to an elder at church and say, would you pray for me, okay? James is just making a point that if you feel that you need prayer for the elders, call on them. They will come to you or you can come to them. Thirdly, James says that we should anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, okay? And this is where people a lot of times jump to that and they, they say, okay, what does that mean? What's going on with this oil? Let's talk about it, okay? This phrase is a subordinate clause, which means it forms part of the main, main clause and is dependent upon it, okay? What's the main clause? The main clause is that they should pray over him. The anointing oil is not an action that is separate from praying from someone else, okay? If you go back and look at it historically, oil was used for medicinal purposes, for hygienic and cosmetic purposes, Here's what I want you to understand is the oil also does not have any power. It's just some oil, okay? If you look at the story of the Good Samaritan from Luke, you're going to see a good example of medicinal use. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, it says, He went over to him, he being the Good Samaritan, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. Okay, there's also examples in Scripture of this hygienic or, or cosmetic use. In Matthew 6, 17, it says, But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. 
or in Luke chapter 7, verse 38. It says, and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. And then Luke 7, 47, or 46, it says, you don't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Obviously, these three passages, which there are a lot more, aren't using oil for physical healing. Perhaps in the first that we read, but not in these last three. So what is James talking about? What's the point of using oil? And some of the commentaries I read made the point that it wouldn't make sense for James because there were doctors in those days, just like there are now. They know different things now than they did back in those days. But olive oil was a common thing that you would put on an open wound to keep it clean. I know that sounds crazy. But that's what they would do. And it doesn't make sense for James to say, rather than calling the doctor, call the elders and have them put oil on it. Right? So what's he talking about? Consider the example that, that James sees from his brother Jesus. In every instance where Jesus goes and prays over someone, he physically heals them. Some people look at this passage and they say, oh, he's talking about spiritual healing. Maybe. But when James, when, in Scripture, when James looks at the life of his brother, anytime it talks about healing, it's talking about a physical healing. James says in verse 15 that the prayer of faith will raise a person up. It says the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So I want us to make the point, I want us to see the point that it, it's not the oil that's doing the healing, but if it's not the oil doing the healing, why are we putting oil on in the first place? right? Olive oil is expensive. I don't know if y'all know that or not. Why are we just slathering it on people? If we look back at the Old Testament and the use of oil for anointing, we're going to find that it was often used ceremoniously. Look at this uh, section from a commentary I was uh, reading this week on this. It says, anointing frequently symbolizes the consecration of persons or things for God's use and service in the Old Testament. Typically in Exodus 28, 41, after you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so they may serve me as priest. The same usage is continued and expanded in the New Testament where anointing is often a metaphor for consecration to God's service. If James has this background in mind, then he would be recommending that the elders anoint the sick person in order vividly to show that that person is being set apart for God's special attention in prayer. So the oil is simply a reminder of God's presence. It's used to, to help the person and others to see that God has made himself available. Often the oil that's used for anointing has been infused with some other really good smelling oil. If you go buy anointing oil today, usually it's going to have like frankincense or myrrh or something in it. And so it smells really, really good. And the neat thing about oil is it doesn't just, you know, like you put cologne or perfume on and it's basically alcohol and it kind of evaporates out and before long it's not, it's not there anymore unless you use the Junior High Boy Axe Spray and then it never goes away. That must have some oil in it. But oil stays on you. And so that lingering smell is a reminder of what God is doing in your life. We practice similar things in other areas of our faith. Think about baptism. When we baptize somebody... And this big old swimming pool that doesn't have a slide, we need to remedy that, okay? When we baptize somebody, it's simply a symbol. The water doesn't do anything. We talk about that at every baptism. But we dunk people under the water to represent death to themselves and to sin, and then we bring them out of the water in an appropriate amount of time, right, to represent new life. 
That's why we do that. It's simply a symbol. We do the same thing when we practice the Lord's Supper. We, we take the cup and, and we drink the juice and we break the bread. The juice reminds us of the blood. The bread reminds us of the body. That's not really blood. That would be weird. Okay, and it's not really the body of Jesus. They're symbols. And symbols are powerful for us. They help us to, to understand what we're doing, what the action is that's happening. This is the same thing that the oil is being used for in this instance. So I want to I say this again. The oil nor the elders hold any kind of special power. Both are instruments for God to use as he sees fit. Third kind of prayer, prayer of others. Look at verse 16 again. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Now, as an SBC church, uh, this is not something that we do in this setting very often where we come together and we confess our sins to one another. A few times that's happened. A few times God's called for it. But I want you to think about where this does happen. This happens all the time in our life groups. And the reason it's able to happen in life groups is because of the depth of relationships with one another. To share with that group the things that we are struggling with. As we confess those things, the entire group has the opportunity to both pray for us and also to help us with the struggles that we are expressing. This is a huge part of why our life groups are as effective as they are. Within the context of those deep-rooted relationships, we're able to share significant moments with one another. Areas where we are struggling. And because of the love and the community that it's built in those groups, those people are able to not judge you, but to wrap their arms around you and support you as you struggle. As we all know by experience, there are many things that we have gone through that we would not have been able to sustain without the support of our groups. The prayers of others are significant. And none of these three kinds of prayers are throwaways. All of them are on equal footing. All of them are a conversation with God, and it doesn't matter who's having the conversation. It's just about having the conversation. So we have to ask this question then. If all of us can pray, all of us are on equal footing, what makes prayer effective? I think I've shared this with you before, but I've had family members come to me before and ask me to pray for them because they said, and I'll quote kind of the idea is, you have a closer relationship with God than I do. Or God hears your prayers better than he hears mine. This was a prevalent idea when James was writing this letter and it's still prevalent today. In both in James's time and today, we have what I like to call professional ministers. In James's time, it was the priest, it was the, the rabbis that taught in the temple. Today, people look at elders or they look at pastors, or they look at deacons, and they put them on a pedestal and they say, they are closer to God than I can be. In church, it's simply not true. God has made himself available the same to you as he's made himself to me or to any others. God is just as accessible to you as he is to me. And James heads this idea off with these last few verses. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. He said, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Elijah was a well-known prophet, and he was often talked about about these miracles that God performed through him. And this is a big one, right? Imagine it not raining for three and a half years. Severe famine would be in the land. 
If, if it didn't rain for three and a half years in the United States, the world would be starving. Okay? That's a big deal. And so for three and a half years, God told Elijah to pray that it would not rain, and it did not rain. And then he said, okay, now pray that it rains so that the world will see that I am God. And he did. Okay? And, he, and it rained. James says something super important at the beginning of verse 17 that he is reminding the church about and we need to be reminded of. He says, Elijah was a human being as we are. The ESV says, he has a nature like ours. James is saying to the church that there is no difference between Elijah and you. That's a big statement to make. If God can perform miracles like that through the prayers of Elijah, then God can do similar things through your prayers as well. And I think that that's something that the church has missed out on. God is the same God that Elijah prayed to, that you pray to. And God's power is not limited by you, right? This requires us to ask another question. What makes prayer effective? James calls out two things. In these verses. The first one is a prayer of faith. Now we've defined faith a lot over the last couple of years. And I'll remind you of that. It says we, we talk about biblical faith is the certainty that it will happen. Not based only on hope or our hard work. But on the revelation of God's truth and character. We've been talking for this whole series about what it means to have true faith. And true faith is a faith that trusts God. Look at what another commentary says about this he says a more fruitful approach is to focus attention on the qualification that James introduces it is only the prayer offered in faith that brings healing James's language here again has a point of contact with the opening section of the letter where he insisted that the believer who asked God for wisdom must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind and I love that that commentator brings that verse from James 1 back up. Look at it with me. He says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in his ways. Church, true faith is one that is built on experiences that we've had with God. That's how true faith comes about. That's how our faith is developed. As we experience God, our faith grows. You become single-minded, not double-minded, because you know by experience that God is able to do and will do the things that He says that He will do. If you are praying, but you find yourself worrying back and forth about what will happen, you do not have faith because you are double-minded. I mentioned when we were preaching through the book of Hebrews, uh, it just so happened that the, the day that we were doing Hebrews chapter 11 was the day, I think it was Joshua was getting baptized, and my whole family came in, and I said I would be remiss if I didn't talk about faith and not mention Lily. Most of you guys know the story of Lily. I had a, a niece who, before she was born, I don't remember the, the technical term, but basically she did not develop a diaphragm, and all of her internal organs were up where her lungs were supposed to be, and so her lungs didn't develop, Okay. And as soon as we got that diagnosis, our family was devastated. Okay, Lily wasn't even here yet. And the chances of her surviving were pretty low. But my dad was insistent that she would be fine. Like, annoyingly insistent. Told everybody he, he met. They'd say, how, how's, how's Sarah doing? How's Lily doing? Oh, she's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. 
And, and it bothered me a lot. But what I realized is that I didn't have the faith that my father had. God gave my dad a word that Lily would be okay. And guess what? Lily's fine. Lily's wonderful. She's spoiled rotten by my dad. Okay? Listen, if, if that's where you find yourself not being able to believe, you need to address that with God. Go back to having a conversation with him. God is never going to throw you out to the deep end. He's never going to put you in a situation where you have to pray and ask for anything to where you can't deal with it in terms of, of having that conversation with him. God is going to build your faith slowly as you are able to, to, to receive it. God's desire is for you to know him. And as you are dealing with things in your life, God is aware and he wants to play a role in that, but we have to have a conversation with him about it. We have to invite him into it. James tells us that it's through the prayers of the faithful that healing comes. But he also says it's the prayer of a righteous person. So what does it mean to be righteous? Righteousness is the quality, state, and characteristic of being in the right. Specifically, it is to be right before God. How are we made right before God or in God's eyes? It's only one way. And that's through the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus' death and resurrection. But is that all that James is talking about? It's not. James is, is addressing a person who chooses to daily walk in obedience to Jesus. That is a person that is living in righteousness. All of us are aware that we are technically right with God by virtue of Jesus. We can agree on that. That's scriptural. But if we choose to live in sin, we are hurting that relationship with God and we are hindering that communication. Let me break it down for you in some terms maybe that we are more familiar with. Husband and wife, they get married, they're in a covenant relationship with one another. A covenant means it doesn't matter if one side breaks it, the covenant still stands, right? And a covenant relationship is intended to be enjoyable. However, if one of the spouses is purposely annoying the other, that is not going to be an enjoyable relationship, right? By choosing to not live in a way that is righteous, we hinder our relationship with God just like you would hinder your relationship with your spouse. This goes back to the same concept we talked about, about faith and works at the beginning of this letter. Our faith is proven by our works. It's not defined by our works, but our obedience shows our faith in God to ourselves and to the world. As we live out our faith, our faith is shown to the people around us. They get to see it. It's one thing to say, I have faith, James says. It's another thing to live in faith. That's the difference. As believers, we are right with God because of Jesus, but our daily lives will reveal or not reveal whether or not we are living in righteousness. I'll boil it down to this. If you are praying for healing, believe that God will do it, and living in obedience to God's leading, you are fulfilling James's instructions. But we've got to address one last question before we can be done. What if I do believe I'm doing all that God wants and I still don't get healed? This is the million dollar question, isn't it? We've had a lot of people in our church, in our body, that have struggled with illness for a long time. It's a good question to ask. And James says something in this verse that we need to address. And I'm going to read a commentary again because he explains it better than I could. He says, certain preachers and writers make a great deal of this call for faith, insisting that a believer simply needs to have enough faith 
in order to receive healing from the Lord. The devastating result of this line of thinking is that believers who are not healed when they pray must deal with a twofold burden. Added to their remaining physical challenge is the assumption that they lack sufficient faith. But this way of looking at faith and its results is profoundly unbiblical. And in James, at least, the prayer of faith that heals, in verse 15, is offered not by the sufferer, but by the elders. Are the elders, therefore, at fault when the prayer of healing does not bring results in a reasonable amount of time? Would the healing have taken place if they had just believed enough? I know that this is the place where many of us have found ourselves before. Whether it be sickness, uh, a loss, relationship issues. We always ask that last question. If I had done an insert, whatever. If I had believed more. If I had more faith. Would this thing have happened? A commentator goes on to say, Answering such a question involves us and finally nuanced broader issue of the relationship between God's sovereignty and prayers. But we can say this much. The faith exercised in prayer is faith in God who sovereignly accomplishes His will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overruling providential purposes of God. We may at times be given insight into that will, enabling us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan to answer as we ask. But surely these cases are rare, more rare even than our subjective emotional desires would lead us to suspect. A prayer for healing then must usually be qualified by a recognition that God's will is in the matter is supreme. And it is clear in the New Testament God does not always will the healing of a believer. Church, I want to I say it like this. When you ask a question in life with God in general, if you ask a question, you have to be ready for more than one answer. Right? You might ask me for something, and it could be yes or it could be no. But you don't know until you ask. The commentator's talking about there will be times where you pray and you say, God, this is what I'm looking for. Is this what you want to happen? And he will tell you. And then there are going to be other times where he's not going to speak. I'll give you an example. Years ago when I was working for Aaron, a friend of mine and his wife were, were doing some foster care stuff. And they had a little girl, I'd say a little girl, she was a teenager who was living with them. Who had come to them and was under their care. And all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, the mom came back into the picture and wanted custody of the daughter. But they knew that she was not ready to take that responsibility back. And they were distraught because they loved this little girl. And so my friend called me and he said, would you pray for me about this? Because I'm, I'm scared to death that she's going to go back to her mom and it's going to be a bad situation. I said, absolutely. And I prayed that morning in my office where I was working for Aaron. And God gave me a very clear word that she would stay in their home. Now, I'll just be the first to tell you, it is uh, unnerving to call someone and to proclaim that. Right? To say, God said. But I did. I called him. And I said, God told me that she is going to stay in her home. I'm going to continue to pray. And thankfully, <laughs> I heard correctly and she stayed in their home. Sometimes God does that. But sometimes you pray for days, weeks, months, years, and you hear nothing. Does that mean we don't have faith? No. It means that when we ask God to heal us, we are subjecting ourselves to his will and it might seem harsh to say God wills someone to stay in sickness but I want to remind us 
that God is always working for our good. When we ask to be healed, we are not guaranteed that it will happen. James is not giving us a formula for success. It's not like if we plug in A and B, we will get C. That is not how this works. James is sharing the basic requirements, but ultimately it's up to God. By praying and asking for healing, we are submitting ourselves to God. This does not mean that God is required to do what we want. I cannot tell you why some people are healed and others are not, but I can tell you that God loves us all. And in Psalms it says that when we weep, God weeps along with us. God does not like for his people to suffer. He did not create us to suffer. He created us to enjoy a relationship with him. But as we've talked about before, sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And we are stuck living in a world full of sin and the results of that. But we are not alone. God has given us another and is working in our lives to build our faith. In submitting ourselves to God's will, we must remember that no matter the outcome, God is working for our good. This morning I read this in Oswald Chambers' devotion and I I just had to add it to the end. He says, nothing that Jesus Christ ever said is common sense, but it is revelation sense and is complete. Whereas common sense falls short. Yet faith must be tested and tried before it becomes real in your life. We know that all things work together for good. Romans 8.28 So that no matter what happens, the transforming power of God's providence transforms perfect faith into reality. Faith always works in a personal way because the purpose of God is to see that perfect faith is made real in His children. Church, all that happens in our life, whether good or bad, God is going to use for our good to build our faith, to learn to trust Him in the little stuff and in the big stuff. This is what it means to have true faith. Today we talk about things like healing, and those are things that are heavy and we want, we desire to be made whole again. But if we desire that more than we desire to know God, we've gotten things out of order. God's desire is for us to know him. And whether times are good or times are bad, God is going to work in our lives so that we have the opportunity to know him. We have the opportunity to have our faith built into true faith. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you this morning for loving us so well, for giving us the opportunity to personally approach you with the things that we're struggling with. Father, right now in this moment, if there are those in this room who are struggling with ongoing illness, who have prayed for healing and and not felt that they have heard from you, Father, I ask for your peace for those people. Father, I ask that you'd give them the bravery to have conversations with others, to, to loop people in on what's going on in their lives. And Father, I pray that they would know that they are loved by you. Father, as we move forward through this week, I ask that you would give us opportunities to share this truth with other people. Father, that you would give us opportunities to pray for others. And that you would remind us to pray for ourselves. And that we would not be discouraged when you don't answer the way we want. But Father, that we would be encouraged by the fact that you hear us. That our faith affirms that you love us. 
Father, I ask that you continue to minister to our spirits this morning as we close in worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.